So if you are new or visiting with us this morning, uh, let me give you a, an understanding of what we're all about. Um, and this vision, our, uh, what we believe, this is the story that we see in Scripture. And it goes like this. First, um, we believe that there is hope beyond our brokenness. Um, so there are no perfect people allowed in this church. In fact, the moment that you walked in the door, you wrecked it. Right? So please, uh, we don't go to a church to find a perfect church. We don't go to a church to find a place where there's no brokenness or no heartache or, or no sin or no problems because that's just not our life. We go to church and we go to this church because we find that there is hope beyond our brokenness when we meet Jesus and when we love each other. That's why we're here. And so our stories are stories of being lost, but also found, of being broken, but also being put back together, of messing up, but also being forgiven. And what we're learning how to do as a community is to live in that hope, not in fear, but in hope. Second, we believe that we are called to trust our risen Savior. And trusting Jesus means listening to him. And dare I say it? obeying him because as we obey which means to simply follow directions or wait until you get directions say that with me follow directions or wait until you get directions it makes your skin crawl already i can feel it right <laughs> when we do that what we're doing is that we're we're, we're we're saying, Jesus, you have good things for me. You love me. You adore me. And I can, I can wait for you and be here with you and follow your direction. Third, we believe that, that we're called to bring restoration to our community and, and even to our world. And so we give away our change for a dollar and we make a difference in, in Michael and Angela's neighbor's life. But then we have families and parents right now um, who are getting ready to take their, their teenagers to Nicaragua in March through Students International. And so we have a group of family members here, parents of teenagers, um, that we're going to go on a mission trip and make a difference in Nicaragua. So from all over the world, and that $300 that you gave to Michael's neighbor, that $300 is matched as well, and we send that to LifeWater so that that 100% Muslim village in Tuchicha, Ethiopia can have tr clean drinking water and hygiene and sanitation. So every little thing that we do makes a difference. Amen? Amen. Now, when we bring restoration, um, we can also have fun. So at 6.45 in the morning, one of my elders, Nicole, texted me. She said, I'm coming after you with the pie-making contest today. <laughs> And, and that was beautiful. That was beautiful. I've never had anybody talk smack to me at 6.45 in the morning on Sunday, but I'm so excited. I gave it, I dished it right back, right? That's good. That's good. So, uh, oh no, I put my phone on silent and I have gifts waiting for me. Um, so, so each one of these things are hope beyond our brokenness, our trust in Jesus, our risen Savior, and our restoration for our community. Each one of these truths has a choice attached to it. And so each week, as a disciple, someone who follows Jesus, 
we actually put intention behind that choice, right? Yes? We choose, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to follow Jesus in these specific ways. And it goes like this. Read this with me. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. So that's what we do as a church, and that's what we're going to see today. Um, we're going to see um, people choosing not to be changed by Jesus, people choosing not to join Jesus in his resurrection work, choosing, people choosing not to follow Jesus or trust him, and then we're going to see how Jesus responds. That's today's passage in John 18. We've been in the book of John for a while now. We've got a couple more weeks, and then we're done. Uh, and then we're off to our, uh, we'll, we'll be in Christmas time. How did that happen? What in the world? I went to Costco yesterday, and evidently it's Christmas. And, um, and I'm fine with that, but wow, okay, here we are. Um, do you remember your first job? Uh, maybe you don't have a first job. Maybe you're hoping to make that a lifelong streak. Uh, <laughs> I made it. Uh, I remember my first job. My, I picked up uh, dog droppings um, for 10 cents a piece so, <laughs> when I was 11 years old so that I could go on a youth group trip, uh, trip to Walla Walla, Washington. Uh, it cost $79, and I picked up $79 worth of droppings. That was my first job. Not much has changed since then. Um, when I was 12, I was a caddy at the prestigious Seattle Golf Club. That was my first real job where I had a W-2 and actually got like hired and stuff. Uh, and so I carried clubs around for rich people who didn't know how to play golf. Um, my first full-time job was at 19. I broke a union line, um, a union picket line at the Seattle docks. Our crew worked on a giant container ship. I worked seven stories below the water line. We were ripping out 12 inches of plastic foam and plastic and then three inches of concrete because a refrigerator room the size of this sanctuary had been contaminated with salt water and oil. So just imagine tin room, jackhammers, picks, shovels, two full weeks, full-time work, seven stories below the water line. Uh, Twelve years and 20 jobs later, I finally got this job. Uh, which And this is the longest time I've ever worked in one place. Yeah. So that street might be broken next week. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. So when you get a job, the first thing that you figure out is this basic idea, which you can express um, in a lot of different questions. And here's some questions that express this basic idea. Uh, what am I supposed to do? What's my responsibility? What does success look like? What does my boss want from me? So we ask those questions when we get a job. And what's interesting is that throughout life, we keep on asking these same questions, but we apply these same questions to all the different areas of our lives. We say, well, what am I supposed to do in this relationship? Um, what's my responsibility for my kids? What does success look like for my body as I age? 
What, is, what does my boss want from me when it comes from, to my finances? I'm looking at my wife, right? What does my boss want from me? Um, part of maturing into an adult is, take, is to take the time to understand how you answer these questions in your relationships, with how you view your body, with how you use your money, with your connection to God. And, and there's always two answers. The answers we're supposed to have, the right answers, and then there's the answers that we actually live. And wisdom is admitting that these two answers are often not the same. Is it getting hot in here for anybody? Okay. So let me zoom in and give you an example in my own life about how these two answers um, were not the same but are becoming more the same. Um, <clears throat> I'll take the example of money. I know from the beginning, when I was a kid growing up in church that money was a tool and that tool was supposed to, money was supposed to be a tool used to create good in the world, right? That was, that was the idea. And uh, so the first 20 years of my life, um, John, can you put up the questions again? Sorry. Um, what am I supposed to do? What's my responsibility? What does success look like? I knew that I was supposed to give part of my money away. And I remember the first time and the only time I ever gave money um, when before I was at the age of 20, I was 19 years old, and I, gave, I put $12 in the offering plate. And I looked at the person next to me, and I said, I just, I just gave some money. <laughs> and the person, the person looked at me and goes, that's nice. I remember how much money it was because I had never voluntarily given money away, right? And as I put the money in, I let it go, and then I, and then it was like, oh no, it's too late. I can't get up there. I can't like make change in the offering plate. And so I knew what the right answer was. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to use money as a tool for good. But what was the answer that I was living? Well, money was all for me. Um, into my 20s, um, even though I knew the right answer, I knew that money was, a, uh, the way that I lived was money was a tool to make me happy. Uh, so I spent all the money that I had on me to make me happy. And the funny thing was, is that um, I, it never worked. I didn't have much money, but no matter how much money I had or didn't have, when I spent it on me to make me happy, it never made me happy. In my 30s, April and I, in our marriage, we finally decided to make a budget. And what we realized was, huh, um, instead of just hoping that we had enough money at the end of every month, we would decide that we would make a plan as to how we were going to spend our money. And shazam, um, when we figured out that what we want actually determines how we spend our money, then we decided prior to spending all our money what we wanted. <gasps> this might sound like a miracle to you, or it might sound very simplistic to you, but when April and I discovered this reality when we were in our 30s, I could not believe it. And so we wanted to do a couple of things. We wanted to pay off our debt. So we ate beans and rice for five years, literally. Didn't buy anything new, didn't go on vacation, and we got out of all of our student loan debt. 
and then we wanted to buy a house. So we saved and saved and saved, and we bought the second worst house in Los Osos. <laughs> Uh, the worst house in Los Osos had the roof burned out of it, um, and it was being sold for $110,000. And then we bought the house three houses away from that, which was the second worst house in Los Osos. But we bought a house, and that was really exciting to us. Um, and the third thing that we want to do is we wanted to actually start being generous. And because we had made that decision and made a plan for that decision, we could start being generous and start giving, which was great. Now, in our, in our 40s, our very early 40s, um, we still know that money is a tool for good, but what's changed in our 40s is that we still have a plan, we still have a budget, we still are accomplishing what we want. It takes time, but we have a plan that we're working. But what we've done is something very unique, which we've never done before, is that now we're inviting Jesus into making that plan. And what's incredible is when you invite Jesus into any part of your life and you say, what would you like to see done here? When Jesus is invited into how you view your body, how you deal with your relationships, what you do with your money, how you manage your sexuality, when Jesus is invited into that, then every decision that you make becomes an exciting decision because you know that you're on the right path. You picking up what I'm putting down? I told this to somebody the other night, but I said our, April and I's most favorite thing to do when we go have a date night is to go do our budget. And people are like, oh my gosh, that sounds like torture. And I'm like, you have no idea how much fun it is. Because we sit down and we say, Look at all that God is accomplishing in our life and look at what we're able to do because our ultimate goal is to be wildly generous. And so we have this plan that will help us get us there because that's what we truly want. Can you see the difference between what I was supposed to do and what I was actually doing and the difference inviting Jesus into that process made? Okay. My hope and prayer today is that by the end of our time together, you might be persuaded or encouraged or convinced even to include Jesus into the answer of these questions. For the sole reason that to not do that would be to leave a lot of joy on the table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for you. We're so grateful that you're here with us. We pray protection now over this time and space. We mute and silence anything opposed to Jesus that would be seeking to interfere or bother us during this time. Father, open our spirits up to your word. Speak to us powerfully today. We give you permission, Holy Spirit, to meet us, to change us, to renew us. And all God's people said? Amen. That means I agree. Here we go. So here's the context. Jesus has been arrested, and during the arrest, Jesus has made two things clear. First, he's in charge. He speaks his name and 40 soldiers fall over. Second, Jesus is choosing to suffer for us as our substitute, even when we're rebellious, foolish, and traitors. So when Peter chops off Malchus's ear, here it is. It's the ear. <laughs> Smells like it. When, Jesus, when Peter chops off Malchus's ear, 
Jesus not only heals the man, but he whips around and he tells Peter this. This is his plan. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Read this with me. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So what's Jesus' job? What does success look like for him? What is he pursuing with his life? That he is going to take that cup, which is that I will redeem you with outstretched arms and I will save you. He's going to drink that, which is suffering and his death on the cross. That's his purpose. That's his plan. So what happens next? The soldiers take Jesus to the guy who they think is in charge. Verse 12, uh, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. You remember that in, in uh, John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Do you remember Caiaphas's response? <clears throat> well, we gotta kill Lazarus. It's the only time in medical history where someone is raised from the dead and the authorities think, this is, this is terrible. Let's kill him, right? So this is, this is Caiaphas's thought process. How did Caiaphas learn this thought process? Well, he learned it from his wife's father, who's Annas, the high priest. Um, if you lived in the time, you would know all about Annas because Annas was the man behind the man. He was the guy pulling the strings. He was the godfather. The, the, he was the guy running the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee at the exact same time. Okay, He's the guy in charge of Washington. You picking up what I'm putting down? Annas was the high priest from 6 to 15 AD. And the guy who had Pilate's job during that time, his name was Gracchus. Gracchus deposed or fired Annas from being the high priest because Annas had the nasty habit of, quote, imposing and executing capital sentences which have been forbidden by the imperial senate. I'll say that again without losing my voice. Annas was fired by Gratus, who had Pilate's job, he was the pro-council of the area region. He was fired for, quote, imposing and executing capital sentences which have been forbidden by the imperial senate. What was Annas doing? Yeah, as the pastor for all of Israel, he was also running the bank, which was the offertory system, and he would execute people who got in his way. That's a unique understanding of his job description and what success looks like. And Annas had five sons, all of whom Annas then, after 15 AD, Annas would make one son after the next, the high priest. And when he ran out of sons, he had his daughter marry a guy named Caiaphas and made Caiaphas the high priest. So when Jesus is arrested, they take him to the guy you know how that phrase, I know a guy, he'll, he'll take care of this. Annas was the guy, right? So how does Annas view his job? What's success look like for Annas? Well, Annas wants peace at any cost, so eliminating problems with his power is his gain. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought because the scene is going to shift to Peter. Here we go. Ready? Let's read this with me. 18, John 18, 15. Simon, Peter, and another disciple were following Jesus. This other disciple 
knows people in Annas' uh, sphere, so that way they could get close to Annas' house and kind of view what was going on. Read, keep on reading with me, verse 17. The servant girl... Uh, the syntax is terrible, right? In the Greek, it's really clear. The little girl looks at Peter and goes, aren't you, aren't you one of his disciples too? And Peter says, Peter says, no. Hmm. Peter wants to prove that he's enough, worthy, a good person, a great disciple. Just a couple hours earlier at the dinner, didn't he tell Jesus, I'll die before denying you? He had the eyebrow raise and everything, right? He's like, I'll die, Jesus, before denying you. And what does Jesus say to him? Actually, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And so the first thing that happens is an 11-year-old girl looks up at him and goes, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And Peter's like, no, back off, go away. Back to Annas and Jesus. Meanwhile, verse 19, read this with me. Meanwhile, wait. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So what is Annas doing? Well, Annas is trying to get Jesus to confess to a crime. Annas wants the problem to go away. Do you ever do this? When you see a problem, do you immediately try and solve it? Like right away? And it really doesn't matter how you solve the problem, just that it's solved. Can anybody ever relate with that? Do you ever find yourself um, maybe even yelling or barking at people in your life while you try and solve that problem? Is it getting hot in here? Do you ever find yourself trying to manipulate the situation just to solve the problem, threatening at all? Because this is what Annas does. He's trying to use his power and position and to puff out his chest to make the problem go away. I used Annas's strategy this week in my life. Um, Tuesday morning, it was 6 o'clock in the morning, um, 6.40 in the morning, and the doorbell rings. I, I don't, I don't want to talk to anybody at 6.40 in the morning, right? Um, ask my wife, and our conversations at 6.40 in the morning are me grunting, right? <laughs> the doorbell rings, and, and a neighbor is saying that the person who helps Jonah on the bus is speeding in our neighborhood, right? And it's like, okay, fine, great. Uh, and I was appreciative, and I wanted to end the, co the conversation as soon as possible because it's 6.45 in the morning. I get back, and our little dog, Frodo, <laughs> has just drank all my coffee and spilled half my coffee and spilled the other half on the carpet. Oh, Frodo, can I throw you into Mount Doom, right? So I was angry. I was irritated. I didn't have any coffee, and I'm cleaning up coffee that I was going to have, and then I'm making new coffee, and I finally make new coffee, and I sit down, and I'm like, 
I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just, I yelled at the dog. I felt bad about yelling at the dog. The dog's looking at me. I'm yelling at the dog. I realized the dog doesn't speak English. Like, uh, I was just, the whole thing, I was just, I was mad. And so I was sitting down and I'm there. And as I'm in my quiet place, um, Levi comes out. Hi, Levi. And Levi shoots me straight in the forehead with a Nerf dart. <laughs> now, he didn't mean to. He didn't mean to. Um, he was aiming for my feet. Uh, he's a lousy aim. And, uh, and the Nerf dart hit me smack dab in the forehead. And at this point, I know I'm shaking. And I, and, and, and I, I know that I, I can't explode. And so I'm looking for like some way to express my rage. And I grab the Nerf dart and I crumple it all up, but it's a Nerf dart. So I open up my hand and spring, it's like back to normal. And it's making me mad. And so I grab the Nerf dart and I rip it in half with my teeth. And I spit at Levi and I said, don't shoot me in the morning. Yeah. I was Annis. Does that, does that sound familiar? You ever do something like that? The strategy is that I'll push and force and make it happen because solving the problem is more important than how I solve the problem. So Annis is trying to push Jesus around, and Jesus just responds to Annis. Verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. Jesus replied, why, why question me? Ask those who've heard me. Surely they know what I said. Oh, dang. Jesus is a little bit cheeky here. Um, but Jesus is demanding that Annas at least do a little bit of homework. Bring a charge against me. I'm not going to confess something. If you have a crime that I've committed, just charge me. Verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? <laughs> he demanded. Jesus answered him, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if I said is right? Why do you strike me? So again, Jesus is just standing his ground. Annas wants everybody to respect him. Annas wants everybody to remember that that he's the guy running Jerusalem, but in this little interaction, who's running the conversation? Jesus. Jesus is the one who's interrogating Annas, not Annas interrogating Jesus. Annas is outmatched, humiliated. He has no power with Jesus, no power to intimidate or coerce. When Annas tries to exert his will and control the situation all by himself, he fails. Does that sound familiar? When you try and use yelling or barking or your power or threats or intimidation to get your way or to make people jump or move, how does that work out in your life? Not too well. 25. Ready? Read it with me. Wait, come on. Put some... Put some tension in your voice. I mean, like, John's eight, 75 years old. He thought about the story for 30-plus years. He's writing. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. Can you see him? Thank goodness that 11-year-old girl isn't bothering me anymore. What happens? So... 
So other people, they, these are other guards now, walk up to, to Peter. How's it going? Peter says, fine. The thing about people from Galilee is they have an accent. Literally an axe. Aren't all the people in Jerusalem go, you, you're from Galilee. I can like hear it in your voice. I always picture Peter and Jesus having a southern twang. <laughs> Repent for the kingdom of God is here. <laughs> Blessed are the meek. I, I don't know, right? Aren't you one of his disciples too? He denied it. I ain't no disciple. Or I'm not, right? So there it is again. There it is again. Verse 26, Peter keeps on responding with the same response, which is self-preservation. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. I was in the garden. I'm pretty sure you cut off my cousin's ear. Weren't you there? <laughs> didn't I see you in the garden? Right? And Peter's like, no, I didn't do it. And right at that moment, ready? Who's going to be my rooster? Okay, okay. Scanlon's going to be my rooster. Right again, Peter denied it. I didn't do it. Such a great scene, right? Can, that's right. Uh, can you see the pattern? Peter tries to prove that he's enough, that he's the best disciple ever, ever, ever. And how does that attempt go? He's trying to fulfill his own job description. He's saying being the best disciple ever means that I'll be right there. I'll be, maybe I'll be real close and I'll hatch a plan of how to, how to help my, uh, my friend escape and and maybe they'll see me and they'll arrest me too, but I'll, I'll valiantly give my life for Jesus. How does all of those attempts to be great go for Peter? Yeah, lousy. See, we're constantly trying to be successful at whatever we've defined success to be. And for Annas and Caiaphas, success is to rule Israel, to secure peace at any cost. And by their striving, this father and son have condemned the only person qualified to rule Israel and bring peace. How ironical. Annas and Caiaphas want to rule Israel and bring peace. And as a father and son team, they've condemned the only person qualified to rule Israel and to bring peace, the Prince of Peace, the true son of the heavenly father. For Peter, success has been the best disciple ever. And by his own effort and striving, he's ended up as the worst disciple ever. And what he's missed is that Jesus never asked him to take on this job description because it's Jesus's job to be the best disciple ever so that Peter can just be Peter. Are you starting to see how foolish it is to define success, to define your job, 
to orient your life apart from Jesus. You picking up what I'm putting down? All your striving will simply prove that you cannot hold onto the very thing that you're working to achieve. Verse 28, read with me. Then the Jewish leaders... It's 4.30 in the morning. They end up at Pilate's house because the Romans haven't taken, um, have taken all of Annas' and Caiaphas' toys away. They can't execute people anymore, so they have to take their prisoner to the Roman governor's office. It's 4.30 in the morning. They knock on the door. Pilate opens. What? He hasn't had his coffee yet. Pilate gets right to the point. Verse 29. Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? It's only got to be one of two charges, right? It's either Jesus has committed a murder and so justice needs to be done, or Jesus has somehow cited insurrection or terrorism, or he's he's guilty of treason. He's trying to overthrow the government. Those would be the only two reasons why Jesus, a Roman citizen, could be tried and then executed by Roman law. And so the Jewish leaders give a hilarious answer. Read this with me. Verse 30. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. It's like me being angry at the dog on Wednesday morning and when he turns his head sideways to look at me like he did on Tuesday after he drank my coffee, that's when I scream, obviously I'm angry at you because you've done something wrong. I just haven't figured out what it is yet. Verse 31, Pilate said, take him yourselves. Judge him by your own law. Pilate needs coffee, right? He's trying to dismiss the case. They respond, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. So Pilate thinks, how can I get coffee? I know, I'll bring Jesus inside. There's coffee inside. Verse 33, then Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, clearly the Jewish leaders weren't helpful at this point, and asked him, he's asking him diagnostic legal questions. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds to a man who's yet to have his coffee. Is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Say what? Jesus is saying, oh, do do you believe that too? He's also saying, wait a minute, do you think I'm king of the Jews or did they tell you I want to be king of the Jews? So Pilate explodes. He says, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Again, Pilate is trying to get at what Jesus thinks his job is. What is Jesus' own definition of success? What is he trying to do with his life? How does he see his responsibilities? What does success look like? Pilate's wondering, does this guy need to take his meds or is he actually trying to overthrow the government? Jesus replies in verse 36, read this with me. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. 
I'm sure Pilate, now having had coffee, is convinced that Jesus needs his meds. Uh, clearly, this Jewish carpenter who's battered and bruised after being beaten by Caiaphas' own soldiers, we learn that in the book of Mark, all night long, his nose is bloodied, his eyes are swollen, a tooth is missing, his lip is torn, he's been beaten all night long by the soldiers. Um, clearly, this Jewish carpenter from Galilee with an accent is no threat. He's talking nonsense. But Pilate needs to make sure. Verse 37. Oh, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, well, you said it. In fact, the reason, pay attention now. Here it is. This is Jesus telling you what his job description is. Jesus telling you what success looks like. Jesus telling you why he's here. The reason, read this with me. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Wow. So, what's Jesus' purpose? What's his job description? Why is he here? To testify to the truth, not a truth, not a little bit of the truth, the truth. Let me put this in another way. Jesus is here to orient the world. Let me say it in another way. Jesus is here to reveal to everyone in this world how life actually works. To give us perspective and understanding and a grasp on what is truly real and what is truly important and how much things actually weigh. Does that make sense? Th this is amazing. Jesus' is help is here to help you understand who God is, who you are, what your job is and what your job isn't, what success really looks like. And Jesus says that anybody who has even a tiny little grasp on this truth, on truth itself, anybody who's figured any, who's stumbled upon truth in their life, wait a minute, I think life may work this way. When they hear Jesus, they'll go, oh, he's speaking truth. Because that's the thing about truth. Once you hear it, you can't unhear it. Does that make sense? Stay with me. Shrug your shoulders. Elbow your spouse. Stay with me. Here we go. Ready? Pilate hears none of this. Verse 38. What's truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there. Now, we'll get to what Pilate does next week, but notice how Pilate responds. What is, what is truth? It's a dismissive comment. It's a roll of the eyes, a, a hardness of the heart. It speaks to what Pilate views his job as how Pilate views success, how Pilate sees his own purpose. Pilate wants to keep all of the beach balls underwater at the same time. Can you relate? You ever try to keep all the beach balls underwater at the same time? To keep under control everything that's spinning out of control? You ever feel like this? Do you ever feel like your job is just to kind of keep everything going? Because you look around and no one else is doing it. 
to make it all happen, like to keep your kids and your grandkids and your spouse and your friends on track. And you can kind of see it when their wheel is wobbling a little bit, right? And you're like, oh no, hey, 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 right? Throwing a little anise in there, hey. April says to me all the time, you're barking, Andy. Right? I do this, I do this, I do this. And, and, and you can see, I mean, you have an endless list of tasks in your mind which need to be get done, things which need to be maintained, issues which need to be repaired and looked at, bills which need to be paid and contested, right? Things which need to be managed. And, and that list yells at you all the time. It screams at you. Can you relate? It interrupts your sleep. It wakes you up at 4.30 a.m. when you haven't had your coffee. Truth? Who cares about truth? Truth is getting things done. Truth is making it happen. Truth is practical. Does that sound familiar? This is Pilate. Next, I want to speak as though Jesus is speaking to both Annas and Pilate and Peter. But can I pray just so that we could hear this? Because we're Annas, and we're Peter, and we're Pilate. So Jesus, protect us. Help us to hear what you have to say to us. Wake us up, Lord. Speak to us. So Annas, Peter, Pilate, they all, they all have a job. They all see their job in their life, and, and it's of their own making. It's a definition of success that they themselves came up with. That's called a kingdom. A kingdom is a set of rules and goals which are running your life, whether you're aware of their, of, of their presence or not. And so this passage is showing us what's it like when we run our kingdom apart from God. But Jesus teaches us to pray about a kingdom. Do you remember how that prayer goes? My, my, my kingdom come, my will be done, right? Isn't that how it goes? It's, it's my kingdom come, my will be done now. Right? Wait a minute, but that's how I pray. Oh, you're telling me that, the, that the, I know what I should pray, but what I actually pray is different? How does the prayer go? Oh, thy kingdom come. Jesus, your kingdom come and your will be done. Oh, dang. I don't know if I like that prayer. Why does Jesus teach us to pray that prayer? Because what he's saying is this, is that, look, the job description that you have, how you've defined success, it's not going to result in you being happy. It's going to result in your misery. You're leaving joy on the table. But when you, when you run your kingdom according to my sets of rules, when you invite me into your kingdom, you know what's going to happen? My will is going to be done. And my way of doing things and my will, it's way, way better and more joyful and the bounty is increased. It's, it's so much more than you could ever think or imagine. Your desire for your life is poverty compared to my desire to your life, for your life. 
So where is Jesus? Was each one of these precious and lost people with Annas, with Caiaphas, with Peter, with Pilate? Well, he's present with each of them. But only Jesus has what each one of them desperately wants. Some of us are Annas and Caiaphas. Some of us, we want peace. Um, when people make a mess, we find ourselves yelling or barking or snarling at them. But most oftentimes, we yell and bark and snarl at ourselves. We want to bring our own chaos back into order, and so we do that by, by using that tool of barking and snarling and yelling and pushing and shoving our own selves. And if that's you, Jesus is reminding you of this truth today. I'm the one with all the power, and I've made peace between you and God, even when you're a rebellious twit. You've tried to solve your own problems, to crush them with your own words of condemnation. That's not your job. I am the crushed and condemned, so you don't have to be. Invite me into your troubled waters, for I am your peace. And some of us are Peter. We're working really, really hard to do the right thing, and we're failing, and we beat ourselves up, and then we work harder, and we fail, and we work harder, and we fail, and we're so tired. We're so tired. And if that's you, Jesus is reminding you of the truth today. You are enough for me right now, imperfect and human. That's why I died for you. Not the future acceptable you, but the imperfect and beautiful you standing before me. I will not leave you nor abandon you. Trust me. Love me more than you love your ability to accomplish or save or achieve. I am your goodness and your enough. And some of us are pilot. We have a lot of responsibility and we're trying really hard to juggle everything perfectly to keep up with the endless tasks and assignments that only we can do. And we're running fast and trying to do so much and we often miss the people standing right in front of our face because we're already on to the next solution. We need more coffee. And if that's you, Jesus has a reminder of the truth for you this morning. Only I can hold all the beach balls under the water at the same time. You're trying to do my job and it's not working. I am God, not you. Love me more than having it all figured out. My plans are way more enjoyable than yours. Let me teach you how to surrender trust and then join me in my work. The gold medal winner in the 100 meter dash in 1924 was a man named Harold Abrahams, forever immortalized in the movie Chariots of Fire. And Abraham said this of his running, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. This is a man running all by his own power, thinking that his job and his life and success and what he's responsible for, it's all and only on his shoulders. When he won the gold medal in 1924, he suffered severe depression afterwards because he, he knew that now he could never top that feat. Harold Abraham's best friend was a man named Eric Liddell. And Eric was a Christian and he ran with a different reason because he invited Jesus into his job description 
And Eric Liddell says this about his running. I believe God has made me for a purpose, but he has also made me fast. Read this with me. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. See, God has amazing things for you to do right now. And God wants you to invite him into it so that while you do those amazing things, you can feel his pleasure. I just wonder if there's part of your life that you've been holding Jesus back from. You're saying, no, don't come into my finances. No, don't come into my sexuality. No, don't come into how I view food. No, don't come into how I view my body. No, back out of my marriage. Like you've, you've kept Jesus at bay for a long time in this area of your life. How's that going? Would, would you like right, can, dare I say it, can I encourage you, can we right now invite Jesus in? And when he's there, like, it all gets better. It's not easy, but it's better. And maybe for the first time in your whole life, you realized, man, I've kept Jesus out of everything. And maybe right now you want to invite Jesus in for the very first time. I promise you that it'll get better. So can we pray dangerous prayers together? Can we do that? Jesus, I invite you into my life. I invite you into every corner of my life. I've been holding you back keeping you out of this area, and it's not working anymore. So come, please, Jesus, into my heart, into my finances, my body, and my marriage, and what I'm doing with my food and my time. I invite you into the places of my wounding and my resentments. Lord, help. I invite you in, into my diagnosis, into my future, into what will happen next, into my poverty, into my addiction. I've been trying to do all of this alone and it's not working anymore. And Holy Spirit, as my friends pray this dangerous prayer, I pray that you would fill them and bless them. Thank you for that you've forgiven them. Seal every truth spoken to them today in their hearts now in Jesus' name. You are our chain breaker. Break the chains of us trying to live life alone. We invite you in, Jesus. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Say that with me. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think of that part of your heart. Think of that person. Think of that issue. Say it again with me. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We give you full permission, Jesus. Come.
Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for pie and chili later tonight. Bless this day. And all God's people said, Amen.